Amen. Thank you, Evan. Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? How are you? Good. Good. I'm glad you're here and awake and ready. Uh, it's good to see you. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here as well. And um, Man, I just wanted to say to, to Evan, one of our other pastors, brother, thank you so much for your preaching over the month of June. You did an excellent job leading us through the book of James, and it was just so good for my soul to sit for four Sundays and uh, be under preaching, and so just really grateful uh, for him and the hard work that he put into that. And he'll continue, James, uh, through the year as well. We'll finish uh, that book. But for this morning, I'm excited to to be back and we'll be continuing in Psalms. So a couple uh, Sundays ago, or a lot of Sundays ago now, we jumped into the Psalms for the summer, just started in Psalm chapter one, and we're in Psalm chapter three this morning, and so if you have a Bible, you can open that to Psalm three, and you know, we'll just do Psalms off and on through the years, and eventually we'll get through all 150, all right? And so we'll get a few done this summer and then uh, jump into something else for a while. But Psalm chapter three is where we'll be. And uh, this morning, here's the question that we're going to be talking about. How should we as Christians show up in a world, in a culture that is opposed to what we believe? That's the question that we're gonna be addressing. How do we show up in a culture that is opposed to what we believe as Christians? Now, the data is coming in, all right, we've been seeing this for over a decade now, that in the West, we do see church attendance, church membership, affiliation with Christianity declining. And that's something that's been apparent in our culture. It's, now, the good news is, is that Christianity is not declining globally. You look at it globally, it is increasing, especially in the global south, Southeast Asia, Middle East, and all of those areas. But in the West, in our culture, there is a decline happening. And for those of us who grew up in the church and um, maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time, you may have been able to witness this yourself. You know, there was a time in our culture where Christians were viewed as having some sort of moral authority in our culture. They were at least respected for the morals that they carried, but that's not the case anymore in our culture. We're not seen in the culture as having a sort of moral authority. If, if anything, many in the culture see what we believe as followers of Christ as immoral or something that's, that's not good. And so with that change in our culture, that can be really stressful, that can be really scary. How, how do we respond to that? How do I respond when my words and my motives and my beliefs and my faith are being misconstrued? How do I respond when people attack what we believe around us? If you're a parent of kids in school, I know you probably feel it of the things that are being taught in the school these days, and you probably feel that fear and anxiety of what is influencing my children. How do we show up in this? What should our response be? What does God require of us when we face opposition in the world? You know, if you're here or you're listening online or listening later and you're not a follower of Christ or you're not sure what you believe about Jesus, I'm actually really interested 
in your response, your reaction to what we're going to read about this morning in Psalm chapter three and in the Bible. Uh, because um, we've been, there, there's more data coming in. And, and one of the things that we're seeing in the culture right now is that although there tends to be a high level of respect for things like Jesus or people, Jesus, uh, the Bible, spirituality, where we're seeing in the culture is it's actually opposition to Christians. Like I wanna wanna show you something, a study, I'll pop this up on the screen. So this is a Barna study uh, that was conducted and released just a couple of months ago. And so what, what they did is polled thousands of people in our country ages 13 plus, and they polled Christians, non-Christians, everyone. And so one of the questions they asked is, would you say that you personally have a positive opinion of each of the following? And these are the responses of non-Christians. So 40% of non-Christians says, I have a positive opinion of Jesus. 28% said, I have a positive opinion of the Bible. 9% said, I have a positive opinion of evangelicals people in the church. Uh, Let me show you another one here. What causes you to doubt Christian belief? So they asked non-Christians, what would cause you to doubt the faith in the first place? The number one reason cited among non-Christians was hypocrisy in the church. Last one I want to show you. Uh, To what extent do each of the phrases, and they gave them a bunch of phrases, describe Christianity, non-Christians, 48% of them said, I describe it as judgmental. That was the top one. And 15% of non-Christians says, I respect that faith. And so what we're seeing is that in the culture around us, There's something going on. There's some sort of perception of the church and what they're saying is one of the reasons why I'm not open to what they believe and what they have to say is because they see us, whether it's deserved or not, as hypocritical and judgmental. How do we show up in a world that doesn't agree with what we believe? Because the data is showing that the way the church is showing up in some way, shape, or form is causing further doubt. How do we show up in a world that doesn't agree with what we believe? Psalm chapter three, I think, is gonna give us an answer. And so we're gonna read that together and see what it has to say to us this morning. As I told you a few Sundays ago, we started in the Psalms and One of the things I like to say about the Psalms is the Psalms are all over the place because we're all over the place. The Psalms are a collection of prayers and songs written to God, and one of the things, the chief characteristics of the Psalms is they're just brutally honest. They're honest. So some Psalms are directing praise and thanksgiving to God, and some Psalms are complaining to God, and some Psalms are angry at God, and some Psalms are racked with fear and anxiety, and others are filled with victory and praise. They're just, they're just kind of all over the place because they express the, the whole spectrum of human emotion. Psalm 3 is the same. If we jump in real quick to Psalm chapter three, one of the things that you're gonna see in Psalm three is that this is the first Psalm with a title. 
All right, uh, 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 basically a, a, uh, a little intro that gives us some context for the psalm. It says this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, what you need to know about that is that's written into the Hebrew text, the Masoretic text that your Hebrew Bible is based off of, that's written in there. And so, yeah, in our English Bibles, we've got chapter numbers and verses in some of these uh, uh, paragraph headings. Those are all added afterwards by publishers, right? But that title, A Psalm of David When He Fled from Absalom, His Son, is in the Hebrew text. And so the psalmist, who is David, wants us to know that this is the context to which he is writing this prayer. And so you can read this context in 2 Samuel uh, chapters 13 to 18. I'm gonna give you a really quick paraphrase, but it's a good read, Second, it's kind of a juicy read, 2 Samuel 13 to 18. There's a lot going on behind this episode with David and his son Absalom, Uh, but let me give it to you real quick. Here's the quick version. The quick version is there was a rift between David and one of his sons, Absalom. And so in the midst of that rift, Absalom decided that he wanted to try to take the throne away from David because David was king over all of Israel. And so Absalom is described in the Bible as this handsome guy, good leader, people loved him, people wanted to follow him. And so he decided to begin to convince the people through all the tribes of Israel to recognize him as king and not David, and it begins to work. And so people turn on David, and David actually has to flee Jerusalem. And so that's the context that Psalm 3 is written. I'm not gonna give you the, the end of the story, all right? You can go into 2 Samuel 13 to 18 and you can read the end of the story uh, if you want because the context of Psalm 3 is in the struggle of it, in the middle of it, in, in the opposition that David is facing from his very son, Absalom. And so David writes this prayer. And in this prayer, I think we're gonna get three ways that David shows up in the midst of opposition. And here's the thing about these three ways we're gonna read about, is that they're all counterintuitive. None of us would probably do this instinctually. None of us would probably act in these ways within our flesh. And yet, David is gonna be an example to us on how we should show up. So let's start. Psalm three, verses one to four. David writes, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You see that word Selah? It's the first time we see that in the Psalms too since we started. Scholars debate what that means, but most think that it means a pause in the reading of it and maybe a deep breath associated with it. One of my pet peeves in Bible reading is when we don't read emotion into the Bible, we kind of read it like a robot. You know what I'm saying? We don't read the Psalms like that. David 
is asking God, what, what is happening? My own son takes a deep breath. Verse three, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Not only did people turn on David, the nation of Israel, they began to mock David for his faith, saying there's no salvation for you in God. And so of course, David, he's going to the Lord and he's, he's going, God, what is happening? Look at all of these people rising against me. They're even taunting me for my faith. And so what David does here in the first four verses is the, is the first way that I think he shows up in the midst of opposition, and that's this. He complains to the Lord. He complains to the Lord. It's the first thing that he does. So quick aside, one of my goals for us as we study the Psalms together through the years is that we would learn to pray to God what is actually going on inside of us. Like just this past week, this is so funny, this is past week, I, I, I see my therapist once a month, and so this was that, uh, the, uh, this week I had an appointment with him, and I was, I, actually now I think about it, I was complaining to him about people who complain, because I don't like it when people complain, all right? Like I, I'm just kind of, you know, just kind of raised with the like, just get over it, all right? Like we just, it is what it is, keep on moving forward. So I don't like it when people complain. And he said to me, he goes, you know, Alan, like the Psalms, like half of the Psalms are people complaining. And I go, I know, I'm preaching that this Sunday. Because there's something built inside of me and I think there's something built in a lot of us that, that thinks spiritual maturity means that when something bad's going on or when we're struggling, we can kind of handle it on the inside. We can push forward, we can storm through. We don't need to complain to God or complain to one another or to share what's going on, but what if every time we felt fear or anxiety, or frustration, or annoyance, or whatever it is, we complain to the Lord. Like, like Lord, instead of going to my, one of my kids and getting onto them first for not cleaning up after themselves, and I told them to, going, Lord, why won't my kids clean after themselves? Why wouldn't I do that to the Lord? Is my relationship with him too formal that he can't handle the actual annoyances that I deal with on a daily basis. God, I'm so tired of the bills coming in, I just can't make ends meet. Why, why wouldn't we pray that to him? God, why are so many people against me and saying to me that I shouldn't even believe in you, there's no salvation in you? This is what David's doing. He's complaining to the Lord and notice the why behind David's complaint there in verse three. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David's going to the Lord because the Lord is the one that David is going to look to for truth and affirmation. When we're in the midst of opposition, it's really easy to be, te it's, it's tempting to look to the people who are opposing us and go, huh, maybe they're right. 
maybe I do have it wrong. Maybe I shouldn't be doing the thing that I'm doing or believing what I'm believing. Now, sometimes in the midst of opposition, that can be a really healthy, self-aware question to ask. But we always go to the Lord first. Lord, why is this happening? Because the Lord is the one that we look to for truth and affirmation, right? We, we can often allow the culture to influence what we believe because rejection is really hard. It's hard for all of us. But that's why we must take it to the Lord because he's the one that gets to tell us what is true. And that's what David does. He complains to the Lord. And then that leads to the second way that I believe David shows up in the midst of opposition. And we find that in verses five and six. David prays, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The second way David shows up in the midst of opposition is he goes to sleep. In other words, he trusts what the Lord has to say. He trusts, he believes in what God has said. David was given an answer by God. That was in verse four, right? It says, from his holy hill, he answered me. And that let him go to sleep. That let him rest. Like, that's counterintuitive when you're under attack, right? To go to sleep. Think of the disciples in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus is asleep in the belly of the boat. What are the disciples doing? They're frantically trying to save themselves. And Jesus goes, you have little faith. It's so counterintuitive to us. Sleeping is one of the most vulnerable things you do. You go unconscious, completely unaware of anything that's happening for eight hours or so. And David says, I went to sleep because the Lord sustained me. He protected me. I believed in what he had to say to me. And so the question is, what is the answer he was given from the holy hill? What does that mean in verse four? Well, if you can remember, all the way back, like four or five weeks ago, when we studied Psalm 2 together, Psalm 2, verse 6, David says, God has set his king on his holy hill. Now, I could preach a sermon series on those two words, holy hill, coming from the entire Bible. I'm not gonna do that right now. Let me really put it simply for you. Here's what God was saying to David. God was reminding David of the covenant that he made with him. God made this covenant with David. You are gonna be my king. On your throne, I'm gonna build my kingdom and someone's gonna come after you, and that person will hold the throne for eternity and will lead my kingdom for all of eternity. And so for David, the promise here, the answer given from God here was that, no, David, you're my king. I have set you as king of Israel, not Absalom, and there's nothing that Absalom can do that will dethrone you from being king. But for us, as we read Psalm 3, what we're reminded of is on that same holy hill, 
Jesus, who would be the king that would be enthroned for all of eternity after David, Jesus shed his blood for our forgiveness. Jesus defeated death through his resurrection so we wouldn't have to face death, and Jesus was crowned king for all of eternity. And for all who trust in Jesus, they'll be called children of God. They'll be given eternal life. Their souls will be secured forever, and there's nothing that they can fear. In fact, Romans 8 would say, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The answer from the holy hill that God gives to us is this, you're mine. No matter what happens, I got you. I have purchased you by the blood of my son Jesus. I have forever forgiven you. I will show you new mercies every single morning. I get to control your destiny. I get to control what happens in your life. No matter the opposition that you face, nothing is a surprise to me. And that truth from the holy hill lets us rest. Go to sleep. The Lord will sustain you. His will will not be thwarted no matter what happens because our souls are secure and I don't need the world around me to affirm that. When we face opposition, our last instinct usually is to, is to go to God and then go to sleep because we trust in what he says to us. We usually wanna solve the problem, right? We wanna troubleshoot it, we wanna figure out, we wanna build our defense. We wanna fight when we face opposition. But that leads to the third way that David shows up. Verses seven and eight. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. The third way that David shows up in the face of opposition is he lets God fight for him. He lets God fight for him. Now, I have a lot to say on this point, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to bring it down. But David, if you look at the text, verse seven and eight, calls upon the Lord to act in the midst of the opposition. It's really important. David calls upon the Lord to act in the midst of his opposition. So I wanna tell you this, and I, this might cause your eyebrow to raise just a little bit, but hang with me. God never calls upon his people to fight for him. I want you to think about this for a second, all right? We're Americans, we're Baptists, we're Protestants. All right, we like fighting. Okay, God never calls his people to fight for him. You might go, wait, wait, hold on, Alan. What about the Old Testament? You know, God would send armies over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go read those accounts. And what was God's pattern when he would send the Israelite army out to fight? The pattern was this. That 
nation that we're about to fight is like 10x the size of our army. There's no way we're gonna be able to defeat them. And what does God say? Go forth because I will fight for you. Go read the Old Testament. I went through the Bible. He doesn't call us to fight for him. The only time I could find a command that we are called to fight was 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul tells us to fight the good fight of faith, to fight for faith, that God is the one who ultimately fights for us. Go to verse seven in Psalm three. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. Now it's interesting. David says, you strike my enemies on the cheek. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, if your enemy strikes you on the cheek, what do you do? You turn the other cheek. Is that because you're a pushover? No. Because you know you have a God who is just and will ultimately fight for you. This, this language of cheek, it's really, it's really interesting in the Bible and just in general. Right, I have a nine-year-old son. We like to wrestle, we like to fight, we like to box a little bit. He loves to just come up out of nowhere and punch me in the back or the stomach as hard as he can. And so, you know, and we'll just kind of jostle back and forth and it's fun. And there's been a few times where he's gotten carried away and he's hit me in the face. And it's like, he can come and punch me wherever he wants, right? It's fine. But those moments where he hits me in the face, I grab his wrist and what's inside of me is I'm gonna destroy you. And then I have to like, okay, what's your son? All right. And I tell him, I was like, listen, you can hit me wherever you want, just not below the belt and not in the face, right? Because there's something about getting hit in the face that shows disrespect, it shows superiority. It, it, it shows it's a belittling when, you're, when you strike the cheek. God doesn't give us that power. He doesn't entrust us with that. God is just. Vengeance is his. It says God will strike on the cheek. It also says here, uh, verse, where am I? Verse seven, you break the teeth of the wicked. And, and this is another place where we get some imagery. That this imagery here is actually of, think of fangs, of an animal with fangs that grabs a hold of you and will not let go. And the imagery is that those who oppose us have grabbed a hold of us and, and they're not gonna let go. And what we see here is no, God's the one that breaks their teeth. He will break their grasp upon us. But that's something that God does. Right, isn't this the essence of the gospel too? That's verse eight, salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't have to fight for God's love. We don't have to fight to prove to him our worthiness of being reconciled with him. We don't fight through our morality, we don't fight through our behavior, none of that for God's love. No, God fought for us we abandoned him, we rebelled against him, and he sent his son to chase after us and to get us. He fought the enemy for us. He crushed the head of the serpent. We didn't do that. This is the essence of the gospel. We don't fight for God. God fights for us. And so what does that mean practically? What does that mean when it comes to how we show up in the face of opposition? Opposition. 
God has not called us to fight for him. God has called us to represent him, to be his ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5, a minister of reconciliation. As I studied the Bible this week, there are three things in the Bible that I found at least and of, of what that means. What does it mean to represent God in a culture that opposes him? The other question you could ask is, what does it mean to represent God while we are in exile? Because that's where we are. As God's people, we belong in the kingdom, and he has sent us here to be his ambassadors. What does that look like? Three things I found. First, we are called to keep our conduct pure in the midst of this culture that opposes him. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. We live our lives in obedience to God's word. The second thing that we do is that we have to be ready to share the hope that is within us, and we do that with gentleness and respect. That's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And the third thing that we are called to do is to love our neighbor, love our enemy, and seek their welfare. That's Leviticus 19, 18. That's Matthew 5, 44. And that's Jeremiah 29, verse 7. We are to love our neighbor, love our enemy, and seek their welfare. We're not called to fight for God. We are called to represent God. And in the midst of representing God in those ways that I just outlined, God will be the one to fight for us. He will avenge all injustice. He will strike the cheek back if that is needed. He'll break the grasp of the enemy if they've grabbed a hold of us. He will keep his promises to us. Go to God, go to sleep, and let him fight for us. That's how David showed up in the midst of opposition. And if we were to step back and then just ask the question that we asked in the beginning, how should Christians show up in the midst of opposition in a culture that doesn't agree with what we believe? I think if we were to step back, should we be surprised at a culture that doesn't agree? Should we be appalled, disgusted, uh, should we look down upon a culture that doesn't esteem what we believe? No. We are called as followers of Christ to have settled hearts that trust what God says, that leans on his promises, and that believes that he will ultimately fight for his people at the end of the day. We are called, as Mark Sayer says, I love this, to be a non-anxious presence in a very stressful, anxious, and chaotic world. And when we show up in these three ways, we, so whenever we face hardship, we go to the Lord first. Even in the things that we think are petty, we go to the Lord first and we sleep upon his promises because we know they're true and we let him fight as we represent, as we do those three things. You know what that builds inside of the believer? Gentleness. And the longer I follow Jesus and the longer I serve as a pastor, the more I've realized 
that the one fruit of the Spirit, the one character quality that just displays someone who trusts in Jesus is gentleness. And the one tell that someone can give that maybe they say with their mouth that they trust Jesus, but they actually don't. I think the easiest tell is harshness and snarkiness and anger at a world that doesn't follow him. Because that's not the heart of the king who has sent us to represent. But these three things are counterintuitive, are they not? When you're in the heat of it, in the midst of opposition, it's not easy to go to the Lord and sleep on his promises and and let him fight. No, we wanna fight. We wanna defend. We wanna take matters into our own hands. That's what our flesh wants. You know, it's like I I remember... um, I have a neighbor that over the last few years I've just been building a relationship with and we have lots of conversations together and uh, he's really antagonistic to the faith and he knows I'm a pastor and I remember this one time, it was like a year or so ago, while I was in this group, uh, this guy's in our neighborhood and we were chatting and talking about a bunch of different things and he looks at me and he goes, hey, hey, no offense to you and what you do is your profession but I pretty much believe that what you do is manipulate people. And I was like, oh, wow. And it really shook me. And I remember, I wasn't tempted to fight in the moment, like buck up at him. That, you know what I was tempted to do? I was tempted to shrink back. Like I was tempted to go, okay, let's distance myself from that relationship because that was hard. I didn't like facing that. But, but, but I found like, okay, as I've prayed for him, as I've trusted in what God says is true, I found, no, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna keep engaging that friendship and that relationship and, and we're still friends and there's opportunities still to, to share the gospel with him because in God's grace, I allowed gentleness in what God has to say to rule what I did and not what my flesh wanted to do. You might, I, I know there are parents, I'm one of them in this room that has kids that are going to school, all different kinds of school, and you're looking at the culture going, I, I have no idea what's happening. I have no idea what my kids are being taught. I have no idea what it looks like to raise my kids in a culture like this. Uh, and and I, I get the anxiety and the fear. And God's calling us to show up by, by going to him first. Complain to the Lord, God, these schools are crazy. You say that to him. But we're also called to go to sleep. Trust what the Lord says. He's got us. The gates of hell won't prevail against him in the church. His word will ring true. We gotta trust in it. Go to sleep. And let him fight. The world doesn't need our snarkiness. The world doesn't need us to wage war against it. It needs followers of Jesus who represent the king and share the hope that's inside of them. And so as a family, as a parent, you can go to the Lord and say, okay, God, here's how I'm gonna show up. For my family, we're here to represent you. And we're gonna trust in your promises. You know, there's a lot of talk. I mean, just things going on politically and all of that where, hey, what, what if one day in this country we lose our freedom to worship? What if we lose religious freedoms? And there's a lot of energy in the church around fighting for the rights that we deserve. And there's a place for that. There's a place to defend and to fight for those and all of that, not against it at all. But there may come a day we lose it. 
And none of these ways of how we show up in a world that's opposed to it changes. None of them. We let God fight. We go to him with what's going on, and we go to sleep trusting in him because we're exiles waiting for the day that we can be in the kingdom of God. So, need to end. Selah, right? Deep breath. Take a deep breath with me. Deep breath. I just want to say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not sure what you believe or listening, and, and that's you, and you've had experiences with Christians that have been very hard and demeaning and judgmental, I'm sorry. That's not how God calls his people to represent him. It's not. And my question for you is this, is what do you have that settles your heart in the midst of stress and opposition and chaos? Because we all experience it. And I want you to know that God loves you. And he wants to bring that kind of peace and settledness to your heart. And he's a patient God. He's a gracious God. And if you're interested in learning more of just what it means to follow Jesus, here's my challenge to you. Don't judge Jesus or don't make a judgment on what we believe just based off of things you see in the world. No, come in, build relationships with people here in the church. We'd love to show you what it means to follow Jesus. You think we're crazy, you can leave. That's fine. But explore it. Because everything we talked about here this morning is what the God of the Bible is about. And for those of us here who do believe in Jesus, church family, just wanna end our time by encouraging you with God has you. He doesn't promise us that we won't ever suffer. He does not promise us that we won't face opposition. But he does promise to sustain you and to hold on to you and keep you even in the craziness of everything that you're gonna see in this world. Nothing is a surprise to God. Like as you send your kids to school, like nothing that is happening is a surprise to him. No, he's actually sent us into this place to represent him. He's gonna fight for us and he's gonna hold on to us and one day we'll be in his kingdom. But for now, he invites you to go to him with everything that's inside of you. There's nothing that you could bring to God that's gonna surprise him or cause him to be like, whoa, calm down. He already knows it all. And he invites you into rest even in the midst of a crazy world. So I just wanna pray right now that God would give you the kind of settledness of heart that I believe he gave David in the midst of a really hard circumstance. That the kind of rest that let him go to sleep knowing that God's gonna sustain me. Because I believe that's how God wants us to show up in this world. And I believe that's how we best represent him. God, I wanna pray for these folks and everyone who's listening to this God, rejection's really hard. 
Opposition is really hard. Conflict is really hard. And Lord, often I I know we feel this desire to shrink back and to cut ties with the culture and just create a little shelter and wait it out until you return or you call us home. But Lord, we know that's not what you've called your people to do. You have secured our souls. You have a plan for us. And you send us to go boldly declare the hope that's within. God, I pray that you would give our hearts a settledness that knows without a shadow of the doubt that you are good, that you are holding on to us and nothing can separate us from your love. Give us the instinct to come to you in prayer when we're struggling. And Lord, I pray that you would grant us sleep. Even in the midst of opposition or persecution or conflict or doubts. We praise you that we don't have to fight to stay in your love. You've already won that fight. And help us to trust you the rest of our days. In Christ's name. Amen.